Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Dr. Monica Moore. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity so much. Welcome. Welcome. You are welcome. You know, I'm so excited about this topic because it's not only a topic that hits home personally, but as we look over the last seven days and everything that's going on in society, a lot of people are asking, what about the kids? What about our children? You know, it, it's, it's been some time, but even as adults in our culture, in our community, adults aren't always in tune to mental health, to self-care, to self-esteem. But before the adults can respond so that we are aware of what to do, these things are now affecting our children. I just want to say thank you for being here tonight, and I would love for you to just say a few words, tell people um, about who you are. And, you know, um, I, I'm just going to skip reading the bio. You have an awesome bio, but I'm not going to read that. Tell people about you, what you do, and um, your background. So, again, thank you for having me, and you're so right. This is definitely a pivotal time to have such an important conversation. I thank you for using this platform to do so. Um, my name is Dr. Monica Moore. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, and I have a virtual pediatric practice um, based out of Atlanta, Georgia, but I see patients in both Florida and um, Georgia. I'm originally from the Sunshine State, and I feel like it's really important for me with my families and my office setting for me to educate, encourage, and engage with my patients, and so that is something that has always been important to me. Um, I've knew, you know, at a very early age that I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I believe that, you know, we really have to lay the foundation. Um, as parents, first of all, I am a, a mother of an eight-year-old daughter, um, and I feel that it's really important that we have those conversations and that we have give our children the ability to effectively, communi effectively communicate. And so that is what my mission is, that is what my purpose is, and that is what my goal is to be able to help families to live a life of purpose, to live a life of peace, and to live a life of prosperity. But I believe that we have to provide the tools and the safe space for children to be able to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as I look at your bio and I look at your background, I got excited because I saw you're not just a physician. You actively talk about your family. You actively talk about your your belief, your spirituality, and you often talk about self-esteem. You know, one of the things that you saw, and I pulled this out of your bio, you said, I believe in helping families to be healthy and whole emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I love that, y'all. How many doctors y'all know say that, Right. But let's, before we get into the details, let's talk about self-esteem. You know, and I happen to know that you didn't stop there in your office. You created a nonprofit entitled Girls Growing Gracefully. And we're going to share that in the chat. Tell us, why did you create Girls Growing Growing Gracefully? 
The relationship that I have with my own mother is probably the most cherished relationship that I have. And I've always, always knew that when I became a mother, if God desired for me to do so, that I wanted to be able to create that relationship and that bond with my daughter. And I, you know, I pray that I am doing my due justice to do that. And it's an everyday journey. And I'm, by no means am I perfect, but I'm definitely in tune to and very intentional about the time that we spend together, the conversations that we have and the exposure and the experiences that we have together. Um, I know that the relationship with girls, the girls have with their mother lays the foundation for every relationship that they will continue to have in life going forward. Um, but I also realize that not everyone um, has been granted the opportunity to have such a healthy relationship with their own mother. And so Girls Growing Gracefully was curated, curated in order for me to be able to provide a safe space for mothers and daughters to grow and learn together. Um, our mission is for us to be able to build, restore, and preserve that mother-daughter relationship. So as I curate the programming for the organization, I'm really in tune and our, 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 our vision is that we're gonna be able to equip these young girls and their mothers um, to be able to live a life of purpose. Um, we also want to empower mothers and their daughters to be able to live boldly, live unapologetically and not worried about what society tells them they should do, what they should look like. And also I believe in experiences and exposure. And so the goal is also for us to expose these young girls and mothers to careers, to people, to destinations that will forever frame their life. And so um, I'm passionate about it. I'm super excited and seeing the growth in it. We just had our second annual Happy To Be Me retreat, which um, grew this year twice the size of last year. And it was just so encouraging to see the moms and the daughters engage with one another, engage with the facilitators. And so I'm super excited about what's to come um, for the organization and to be able to plant these seeds um, for the young girls and for the moms as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I was peeping out some of the pictures from some of your events and it just, it looks so community based. I'm, I, I saw you guys were out at the park. You guys were doing, I don't know, yoga. You know, First of all, I was jealous, right? Anybody <laughs> know me, I like to be in, right? I'm like, why can't I be, you know, I, I don't want to be girls, you know, but you know, I want to be out there too, but it looks so fun, right? So, you know, kudos to you for doing that because I can see the consistency. Let's talk about the mental health thing, you know, and I just want to kind of get into your observation, right, as a pediatrician. You know, from what I learned, you know, things can happen at school, you know, something happens with your child and they say, hey, you know, maybe the child doesn't have enough vitamins and they say stuff like that. And, you know, you know, next time you meet with your pediatrician, you ask questions. Tell me this, you know, based on, you know, COVID and some of the patients and nuances that have you seen, have you seen any different types of appointments or meeting or sessions or questions since COVID when it comes to our children? A huge amount of conversations um, that have come as a result of COVID and a lot of that deals with the anxiety um, and the worry that young children have about the disease, whether or not they're going to get COVID, whether or not someone in their family is going to get COVID, um, dealing with the loss of a parent, dealing with a loss of friends, dealing with a loss of family members, um, but also just the um, an uncertainty uh, of not knowing, you know, are we going to be going to school? Are we, are we not going to be going to school? Is it going to be virtual? How am I going to learn virtually? Um, so many families and kudos to teachers. I've always, always, always had a high level of respect for teachers, but having to, you know, be a teacher in addition, I mean, of course, we are first our children's first teacher, but literally being, having your home be the classroom, you know, so that has really um, caused, and there has been quite an increase in the amount of anxiety and depression that has been um, diagnosed um, since COVID. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends that over 20% 
of children and adolescents um, have a diagnosis of a mental health disorder. And so it's a really pivotal time for us to be having to, for us to have this conversation. Last month, I'm sure you're very well aware that it was Mental Health Awareness Month. And I believe that we are more open to the conversation about mental health and mental um, and needing um, to seek care. And so I believe that there has been some positives out of COVID. And I believe one of those is the fact that there is such more of an awareness and a importance of attuning, uh, being attuned to our own personal mental health, as well as the health of mental health of our children. So uh, I do see that that has been a major concern for a lot of my parents and just being, being able to have that conversation with them. You, I know you're going to talk with Dr. Toy later and, you know, be having appropriate resources to be able to provide for these families that are living in so much uncertainty and dealing with the anxiety um, that they weren't initially um, experiencing. Yeah, th thanks, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, it's kind of like my intuition would tell me that, hey, something has changed. But it's always good to hear someone kind of confirm, like, yeah, there is some things going on. Tell me your thoughts on this. How can we as adults better communicate with kids, you know, in a way to help them develop, you know, better, comfortable describing their feelings, emotions, and emotional self? You know, because as adults, one, we may not even notice it. But then what do we do when we do notice it? Is there any way that we can engage with children differently so that, you know, we can better help support them during these times? I think it's extremely important for us to focus on the emotional well-being of our children. And one of those ways is to build that emotional intelligence. So helping children to be able to identify what their feelings are. Um, and then after identifying what that feeling is, so then how do I express it? You know, and I think that as parents, for us to be able to, have an environment in which they are able to safely share their emotions, that they're not gonna be judged, that they're not gonna be ridiculed, that no one's gonna make fun of them. Um, and the other thing is how to um, cope in a healthy manner. So there are a lot of unhealthy ways to cope with our emotions, but then there are so many other healthy ways that we can do that. And I believe whole, wholeheartedly in modeling that behavior. And so even as parents, sometimes we may have a hard time identifying what this emotion is for ourselves. And so being attuned as an adult with our own emotional well-being, our own mental, um, our men all mental health, having our own mental health, um, you know, provider for our own self. And I believe that it's important for us to even share with our children. You know what? I may be, I get nervous. I get anxious. I get worried, you know, um, and doing so in an age appropriate way so that they understand that. But then also giving them the tools that when those feelings do come, that they're able to um, adequately address them and to cope with them in a healthy way. And so those things could be something such as deep breathing exercises, meditation, as you saw us doing meditation at the Happy To Be Me retreat. Coloring is a great form of um, getting centered and, and focusing on that one thing, guided imagery. So there's so many different ways that we can help address that. But I think that, as you stated before, we need to be aware of our children's changing emotions. You may have a child that may become a little isolated. They may be, they used to be outgoing and personable. And now it's really hard for you to pull out certain conversations from them. So I think being intentional and being very aware is one of the important things that we have to do for our children and ourselves. You know, you know, I was thinking that word and you said that exact word that I was looking at. It's, it's intentional. I like the way you describe it because I'm thinking, I'm like, hmm, the solutions are at our fingertips, but if we're not aware, we can't be intentional. So I like the way you describe that. One, identify it, then be intentional. So this is a thing that kind of, I, I, I created this question because it really kind of relates to 
you know, what you do with self-esteem and the work with girls growing gratefully. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a children, you know, being affected by this. Well, let me step back. What are some things based on your experience with girls growing gracefully that we can do to help children develop a better self-esteem? Because it's such a terrific topic. I mean, even when I think about self-esteem, I'm like, what does that even mean, right? I know it's important, right? But now that I'm thinking, I'm having a hard time even realizing what self-esteem means when it comes to a child. What are some things that we can do based on your experience with girls growing gracefully that we can do to help our children develop a better, healthy self-esteem? That's a great question. That's one of the things that we definitely did focus on at the retreat. We actually had sessions specifically geared towards um, building um, confidence and building self-esteem. And we broke the young girls out into different age groups specifically because we know that at different ages and different stages of development that they be, may, may be dealing with the various challenges. And I think one of the important things is to have in that conversation about um, how they're feeling about themselves. And so some girls are very open to having that conversations, others may not be, um, but giving them the power to be able to um, vocalize what they're feeling. But also we spoke, we speak a lot about affirmations. Um, and some young girls had never heard of that word. Some of the older girls had never heard of the word affirmations. And it's one of the practices that my daughter and I have every morning that we speak our affirmations. And so we speak a positive word about ourselves. And the more and more that word is spoken to you, to yourself, you saying it to yourself, but sometimes you have to be your own advocate, right? Um, then you begin to believe it. And I believe that um, also we have to really watch and monitor the peer group that our girls are in, in our young boys as well, um, because sometimes that can cause them to not have a good self-esteem. They may be bullied um, for being different. And I really uh, encourage and ask girls and boys to embrace their differences as the unique representation of who they are and to be very confident in who they are and, and know that they know that they know their worth. Um, I also feel as parents, sometimes we have to become careful about our own conversations. Um, you know, sometimes we may say things about our own self and they may hear that, you know. And so I think that that's important that we monitor our conversations. Uh, we monitor their exposure specifically as it centers around social media, because they're oftentimes trying to emulate something that they're seeing that's not um um, not real, to be honest with you. And so being able to show them um, who they are, um, they also did self-portraits at the health, at the self at the um, the retreat. And so just being able to find those things about themselves. I often do journal writing. I do um, guided journal writing and I just have specific um, set points about um, their experience and their exposure in their life. So what's you know, what's the thing that you've done that's given you the most joy, you know? Um, What's the thing about you that people say that they really like? So sometimes they've never thought about that before, right? They've only have, unfortunately, have self-sabotaging thoughts that they've had about themselves that oftentimes comes from society. Um, But being able to sit down and have those really intentional conscious conversations about their self-worth and and, and speaking life into them is something that I, I highly highly find important and, and pivotal. You think, thanks for explaining that, because, you know, as you were speaking, I just had a few aha moments. I began to think about the conversations of how young girls may be dealing with various things, right, from bullying to peer pressure to what they think about themselves. And then I began to think of other nuances, such as there are even adults that haven't conquered this. But then for the people who are like, well, if adults hadn't conquered it, why do the kids need to conquer it? But then I had another thought. I'm like, well, in these times of social media, of videos, of YouTubes, there is so much messaging that's hitting our children. 
a good example. I was in this session and and we were talking about um, school related stress, and we're going to talk about that later with Dr. Toy. But essentially, the mother talks about she's getting ready to have a parent teacher conference, and as she's getting ready to have a parent teacher conference, her son starts crying, and he's just crying, 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 and she's like, "Why are you crying? We're just going to talk to the teacher." And he says, well, well, I'm crying because I feel like you want me to be perfect. And that messaging, and she's like, huh, where does that come from? I never said I wanted you to be perfect. But then, you know, some time ago, I heard my own son say those words about being perfect. And I was like, oh, the world has changed. There's so much going on. There's so much messages out there, and those messages are getting to our children. Thank you for sharing that. I just had a moment, y'all. I'm, I'm back yeah, well, now. <laughs> <sharing that. laughs> yeah. Let us let, talk about mental health. You know, we we kind of talked about, you know, um, I like the way you described, you know, COVID when we met. You says we lost so much social engagement, community connectedness. You know, you talked about what it means to get back to that. You talked about the isolation that we occurred, and I like the way you described that you want to be able to help children and families navigate to this new normal. You know, maybe that's the role that parents have, you know, and, you know, I'm definitely curious and I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, But let me pause there and see if you want to share anything on that, because I just want to kind of just share that. I I just love those points that you made. And then we're going to talk about virtual medicine. But but tell me your thoughts overall of um, COVID, because, you know, you, you had some really deep thoughts that I really enjoyed. No, you're right. And I believe that, you know, when it first came out and we talked about social distancing, a lot of people changed it, right, to physical distancing, right? So we're telling someone that we cannot socially engage with one another. And I don't think until it was lost or unable to do it in a safe way that many of us, myself included, realized just how much that connectedness, how much that engagement meant. I remember when I first felt comfortable, you know, once vaccinated and everything going and and, and having a trip with some friends, I was like, wow, I missed this. (laughs) I didn't really realize what it, what I was missing, you know, without having it. And I think that for some, they are slow, you know, may still have some reservations and I totally respect that. And I believe in doing so very safely. Um, But that connection is something that is truly important and something that we need. Um, You know, you see probably a whole bunch of commercials that say that we're in this together and being isolated and not being able to engage with one another really can make one feel um, anxious or worried or just not have um, that sense of peace about themselves because we need to be able to have conversations. We need to be able to engage. We need to be able to talk about what's going on. And I think that those, uh, you know, it opens up an opportunity for you to share because sometimes you think that maybe you're the only one experiencing those emotions, uh, but it validates you when you have other people around you that are going through similar situations and you all can come together and connect and find some healthy solutions for for you to overcome the challenges that you are facing. And so I'm really hopeful um, that people will be able to do that safely, um, engaging um, with one another and finding safe ways to do that. I think that um, virtually we're able to do that a lot more. People are probably getting tired of Zoom meetings, but I think that I've talked to so many people that had maybe birthdays during Zoom, during COVID, and they would have never had those family members maybe travel from a far distance to come and, you know, engage with them. And so they were able to do that, you know, um, remotely. So I believe that that played a big role, but I think that we have to remain that and we have to make sure that we're checking on each other because sometimes you say, oh, they're fine. They're good. They're strong. They're, you know, but you just never know what an individual may be going through. So I think being, um, you know, checking in 
on your family, checking in on your friends and your colleagues is something that they really, we really have to do to let them know that we care and let them know that we're there to support them and, and, and be there for them in their times of need. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, initially I thought, you know, and I, I don't know if I deeply thought about it or if, if it was a feeling, but I was like, oh, you know, things are kind of getting back to normal and, you know, it'll take a little time. But then it hit me that still me personally, I hadn't totally, totally opened up to, you know, being comfortable and being fully vaccinated and still uncomfortable because of so many unknowns that it hit me that one, I may not be, you know, traveling and being out there, you know, like you said, you had that experience with friends. And then, you know, just think about how it affects. So it, it hit me that it's not over emotionally. Physically, it may be trending, you know, but it goes left to right. But then it's like the emotional part. It seems like there's still some work to be done in that. So it just really gave me awareness. One of the things that I found fascinating is that you and Dr. Toy both do virtual medicine. And I think that's a cool thing. So I talked to a few people about it. I'm like, what do you guys think about virtual medicine? Like, is the thing, and you know, people are like, well, yeah, kind of. And some people are like, oh, you know, Georgia got its issues and, you know, they're, they're behind. And then I've heard other states are kind of ahead. Do you mind just hipping us to virtual medicine? Like, what is it? How does it work? And what, it is, what are the trends, right? Or are you seeing more professionals like you? You know, what should we expect? Should we be open-minded and considering more virtual medicine? What are some of the things you're seeing? So I definitely believe that in the beginning because it was a new um, phenomenon for many people had never heard of the word virtual medicine, never heard of telemedicine. It was definitely out prior to COVID, um, but definitely um, I believe that it, it has, and I know that it has allowed for greater access to care, um, specifically um, as it relates to mental health. And also for us to be able to, in areas that are underserved in rural areas for those individuals to um, access care where they wouldn't be able to do so. And it took some time for people to kind of get comfortable because, you know, you're used to being in the same room with your pediatrician, your internist, your primary care doctor. But I think the more and more that people um, began to engage in telemedicine and engage in um, virtual um, um, visits, that they got a lot more comfortable. And I, you know, one of the, I think there's a lot of positives to it. Again, we talked about the access to care, being able to access um, care in areas where physicians may not be personally located. Most physicians have gotten licensed in many, many different states, so they're able to, you know, um, practice state um, across the, you know, states that they weren't previously doing. Nothing, you don't have to leave your house, right? You're in your home, you're in the comfort of your home. So, you know, worrying about missing an appointment, you know, uh, unless you just forget to log on, you know, it's, or, you know, being late. Um, I'm in Atlanta, so that Atlanta traffic, you know how it is. It, it, you know, 10 or 15 minute window, if you don't get out of your house on time, you're going to have to be calling the, the physician to let them know that you're going to be late. I think that it provides that. For me as a pediatrician, it lies, allows me to be able to see the family in their environment, in their habitat, what they're used to. And so specifically because I um, focus on weight control and helping families to live healthy, happy lives and be able to make healthy lifestyle changes, then we can talk about what's in the cabinet, what's in the pantry, you know, that type of thing. So for me, it's been a great opportunity for me to connect and engage with families in that environment. Um, and I, I know that it's here to stay and it's growing. Um, it's provided so many opportunities for individuals to get hair, care that they would not normally be able to receive. Awesome. You know, and I'm a techie. So, you know, what I was telling people, I'm like, yeah, 
you know, we have the technology now, but it can only get better, right? Because I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure you can do some blood work at the virtual medicine or you can get other things, you know, at nurses. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's just a couple of years from now, Apple Watch, they're going to be doing everything. But, you know, the technology is coming along. So it seems pretty exciting. And I like the way you describe it, especially for mental health, right? Is that, you know, with mental health, you can easily dial someone up or easily build that relationship based on what the barriers are. Awesome, you know, and I like the way you describe it is you get one doctor such as yourself that may cover multiple states, and that opens opportunities for a lot of people, especially when they begin to find a physician that they like. Um, have you? Let's talk about the good side. Have you seen, you know, since COVID, children's mental health, you know, any positives, any new things happen that maybe wasn't happening before? Definitely, there has been a greater focus and a greater amount of energy um, um, information, educational resources surrounding um, COVID that have helped parents to navigate this new normal. I believe, I remember when it first came out, there was a lot of um, videos and a lot of educational tools and resources to help parents have that conversation with their child about COVID and about, you know, what emotions they may have surrounding that. And so, um, again, I do believe that there have been some positives. I believe that the conversation is a lot, um, is happening a lot more. I believe people are a lot more open um, and transparent about their own mental health um, problems that they may be experiencing and talking about the fact that they're seeing a therapist, talking about the fact that they're seeing a psychiatrist and checking in on their own mental health and just having conversations with their own friends and family that may then encourage that family member to also seek the necessary help that they need. So, and I um, as well as, you know, a lot of education as far as in the, in the school system so that the teachers that are caring for our children are also able to recognize when a child may be dealing with a mental health um, disease as much as, you know, that they can support them, that they have resources for them, and that they can be that um, sounding board if they need it and then escalate it to a higher level of acuity if needed. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Did you I'm sorry about, about, about there's so many questions, but I'm, I'm just so deep in thought right now. So I got to slow down a little bit. You know, I'm thinking about the positives. I'm thinking about, you know, I can definitely see an increased, you know, awareness. And I think that awareness is good. You know, even thinking about one of my favorite movies, um, you know, movies where the child movie where the, you know, there's all of these feelings, anger and pain and things like that. You know, mm -hmm. and that was a great um Inside Out is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there was stuff like that, but still I felt like there was a still this kind of the stigma. And I like the way you described it is that as a child begins to get help, it opens a door for an adult to begin to think about help. You know, but tell me the process, right, for parents who are new to this, mm -hmm. right? You know, I, I've been told that, you know, Parents, they go to their pediatrician, they talk with a pediatrician, a pediatrician does some assessment, and then all of a sudden, maybe there's a recommendation for things like ADHD. Do you do ADHD assessments? Or how does that work? Or how do children with these concerns or families with these concerns end up, you know, meeting with you? And what happens next within that referral to someone like Dr. Toy? Right. So it's always important. I, I always stress the importance of having a medical home. Um, but also we have our resources within, within the community um, that are able to help us support our children the best way that they can. And so I guess the first step would be if a parent is concerned or a teacher has brought up some concerns, they usually do end up at the pediatrician for the initial you know, conversation about, you know, we just had a parent-teacher meeting and the teacher is a little bit, is concerned 
that, you know, my son has been inattentive at school or has been easily distracted. And so after having that conversation, assessing what's going on, then the referral would be for psychological testing or specifically if there's a concern specifically maybe for autism. So there's certain testing that can be done. So the initial conversation usually does happen with that child pediatrician, but then we do refer out to health, mental health professionals such as a psychologist to go to do that further testing to make that, to identify um, you know, what might be the cause and the trigger of that patient's behavior. And then those assessments usually come back to the pediatrician and then developing a plan together and being in constant you know, communication with each other about what best steps need to happen to be able to support the child in the best way that they can. Okay, th thanks for that. You know, it's, it, it, it's still, you know, and I, I like it, but then at the same time, it makes me nervous, right? So it, it probably is one of those things that, you know, in the Black community, people talk about there's the stigma, right? But, you know, do you find that, you know, parents, you know, kind of come to you, but then they get stuck and they don't want to go to the therapist? You know, do you sense the stigma that they're more comfortable with pediatricians than therapists? Like, what's, what's been your observation? There are definitely some, definitely some barriers and, and definitely um, can be a hindrance if the parent has some apprehension. I think for that parent that themselves maybe um, have had a diagnosis of um, ADHD or had anxiety or had depression, they are probably a little bit more astute to what's going on with their child and maybe a little more open to seeing a, a mental health therapist. But I believe in, again, as I stated before, you know, my, my goal um, is to educate, empower, and to engage. And so we are really important for us as the primary care doctor to have that open conversation for that parent to feel comfortable um, talking to us and building that trust. I think that that is so huge. Um, and what we do is for us to be able to build trust within our family. So it may not happen on the first visit, right? Um, but I think opening that door um, and having that initial conversation and then coming back to it. So if a parent leaves and I kind of gauge that they may not quite be open to it, then I say, you know, let's follow up in about one to two months and see how things are going and let me know. And if you have any concerns prior to that, then definitely feel free to contact me. But going ahead and providing them with that necessary information so that after the conversation, if they sit down and they meal about it, and or maybe they see some other behaviors that are concerning to him, them, they have that resource, they have that, um, that number that they can call, and they can always, of course, come back. But I think that building that trust, having that conversation um, is really important in what we do as primary care physicians. Wow. You know, that that is just an OMG moment for me, because that trust, as you described it, is so important. And I don't know why, you know, I don't hear, you know, physicians often talk about that trust, right? Because, you know, I'm just sitting here being real. And I'm like, you know, I hear what she's saying, but I'm nervous, right? And you picked up on that. And that is so cool. So I can tell that, you know, you know, as they would say, bedside manner of the ability to connect with that patient. And in this case, the parent of the patient, so that you can build that trust. Because let's keep it real. A lot of times these doctors, these people don't look like us. So it's hard enough to trust, you know, somebody outside the family. Then people don't look like you. You don't think they're listening to you. But uh, I think it's key. And maybe that's a thing because I've heard that um, virtual um, physicians work so much harder, you know, at what they do. So I can tell you picked up on that trust and kudos to you because that's a big one. And the chat is appreciating that. Let's talk about nutrition. 
So you do work in nutrition, and I definitely want to hear about nutrition. I, I, you know, I, I'm a dad, and I just want to give you a scenario. Is that, you know, I didn't realize how hard children's nutrition was and how you can easily end up in a situation. For example, let's say we go out to eat. You go out to eat, what options are there for children? I guarantee you, carbs, carbs, and carbs. I was watching, I said, wait a minute. When I go out to eat with my son, there's going to be cheese on a pizza or a quesadilla. There's going to be fries. And there's probably going to be cheese or quesadillas again, right? Chicken fingers. There's really some very few options when you go out. So then it hit me. Then I thought about, wait a minute. When he was a toddler, he liked Lunchables. And I thought about Lunchables. I'm like, oh, my goodness. What's in Lunchables? Carbs, right? Cheese. I'm like, good Lord, the baby's only eating cheese and carbs the whole time, right? So I said, it, it can happen easy. Because if you look around us, it's not like you can go out to eat and have healthy options for a child. So, you know, I confess, it, it can happen to the best of us and it can happen so easy. What have you seen when it comes to children and nutrition? And tell us about the work that you do, you know, in helping parents and your patients with nutrition. It can be challenging and it's very hard, especially if, you know, you have uh working outside of the home, you're really busy, you're getting home really late. Um, and so you're stopping by a fast food or you're going you know, to the restaurant and, and getting something for takeout and bringing it home. But again, as we stated earlier about that intention. Um, so one of the things that I do try to talk with families about is meal prepping, um, going ahead the weekend prior, say maybe going shopping on Saturday, maybe doing the meal preparation on Sunday. You can cook all of the meal, a portion of the meal, and it really doesn't have, have to be anything fancy. Um, you know, you have your, you know, you know, your protein if you if you, you know, your protein of choice, your vegetable, you know, and your your starch. Of course, I always talk about, you know, uh, brown, you know, rice and and wheat pastas and things of that nature, but monitoring the carbohydrates as well. But a lot about a lot of is modeling behavior. So a lot of families that I see that family, the parent may not be eating a very wide variety um, and having a very, um, I would call it diverse palate. And so it does start really early. It does start really early introducing different foods into their um, into their environment. But I know it's, it's challenging. It can be very challenging, but I always talk with families about just doing one thing at a time, right? So you may have this you know, this end goal that you want to have, but the way that you get to that big goal is that you have small wins in in the interim, right? So, you know, if that child always, always, always wants you, so, you know, maybe, you know, cutting that down or out, maybe the first thing that you do. I always encourage families to cook together um, so that the child um, can be actively engaged in the preparation process, let them kind of pick a meal and you all cook it together, having your own garden if it's feasible, you know, growing your own vegetables is something that I will talk with families about doing that, even visiting a local farm or a local, um, a local garden just to see, you know, where our food is coming from. Um, but it is hard. Um, but I always applaud my families when they're making those cons um, concerted efforts to do so. And then also, you know, letting the child know that I'm proud of them for doing the same thing. But we just have to be intentional about it. I always say, you know, if you're going to eat out, you know, go ahead and look at the menu ahead of time. Of course, like you said, it may not be varied. Um, portion size is something as a position that I'm often talking to families about. So say you're, you know, you go out, 
you have the meal, go ahead and have them bring the to-go um, and get half of it and set it aside. And the half of that, that other half of your meal can be your lunch for the next day. Um, filling up on water, because a lot of times when we think that we're hungry, really just thirsty. Um, so water should be like the first go-to. And I you know, really stress the importance of water intake, but just making it a family affair, making it fun, but also you as a parent being open to new foods and so that they see you trying a new food. And so they'll be uh, a little bit more um, uh, encouraged to do so. Also making the food fun. I have a book that I, I purchased that has a lot of different fun uh ways to make certain things like a little smiley face or a little caterpillar, things like that. Pinterest is a great way to do that. So, you know, just, just really being in, in, intentional and engaging and make it a family um, opportunity to, to share time together. Intentional and engaging, you know, those are going to be my favorite words for tonight. Intentional and engaging. We're going to get ready to transition, but before we transition to Dr. Toy, I would like to kind of hear more about how, you know, your practices, how people can find you, once again, the states that you cover, and, you know, um, what, you know, they can expect, you know, if they choose to reach out to you. Um, tell us about you, your practice, and where people can find you. All right. So, again, my name is Dr. Monica Moore, board-certified pediatrician. I can I see patients in the state of Georgia, um, as well as in my home state, the state of Florida. You can find me on all social media outlets at Dr. Monica Cares, um, that's IG, that's LinkedIn, and that is my Facebook page as well. Um, my virtual pediatric practice, as I've spoken about, is um, I focus on a comprehensive medical weight control plan for entire families to help them live a healthy, healthy, happy lifestyle and help them to change behaviors. And we have virtual meetings that help with the accountability. And so if you, you know, choose to reach out, know that you have a trusted, reliable, same pediatrician every time. Um, and so my, my website for my pediatric practice is premierwellnesspediatrics.com. Again, that's premierwellnesspediatrics.com. And again, as you stated before, I do have a nonprofit organization, Girls Growing Gracefully, where I curate experiences that help to cultivate healthy mom-daughter relationships. And that website is girlsgrowinggracefully.com. And I thank you so much for this time. Awesome. Awesome. And one last thing, you know, you got to tell us about your book and to me, okay. drop, drop that <laughs> book in there. That, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I miss the book. Tell us about your book. Yes. And so I have a book titled Be Unique. It's a girl's guide to self-awareness and self-acceptance. And it's really about helping young girls to navigate one of the most challenging times that I experienced in my life, which was middle school. But it's specific, you know, it's platform is for middle and high school girls, but it's really about teaching them how to unleash their confident self. And that book, as well as a journal accompanying that, because I did talk about the importance of journaling, can be found at Dr. Monica Cares, and that's D-R-M-O-N-I-C-A-C-A-R-E-S.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Monica. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited. Excited. I just get, you know, all these thoughts just keep going. And, you know, if you hold tight and um, we're going to transition and we're going to talk to Dr. Tor Carey and what we're going to do for the audience, continue to put your questions in the chat. And what we're going to do is at the end, when I finish talking to Dr. Toy, then we're going to do some Q&A between both doctors and we're just going to, you know, have fun and things like that. So up next, we have Dr. Toy. And I'm going to put her spotlight and let me remove Dr. Monica, Dr. Toy. Let's see if we can get you unmuted. 
Yes, I am What's here. What's up, lady? OMG. What, do you see all my emotions I'm going through as I'm talking to um, Dr. Monica? Ooh, it, and I, I was going through similar emotions. It's a hard act to follow, man. But yeah. I'm here. Do my best. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's so cool, you know, because, you know, when I thought about this, is I'm like, you know, we have two awesome, you know, speakers, right? And, you know, people who know me, they know I run a tight ship, right? So I'll be like, hey, I, this got to happen. This got to happen. But then you know, I said, you know what? This is the full experience for the audience. Because, you know, in this case of mental health, it's not often that you're going to just deal with one person. You may end up dealing with multiple people. Mm-hmm. And in dealing with multiple people, I wanted to create the experience to where they begin to understand the perspective of the physician. Right. And then they begin to understand what happens when they make that recommendation. And that recommendation really, really begin to see. And I like what she said is that they may not take my recommendation the first time. It may take a while, you know. Often takes a while. Yeah, but then they show up with you. Well, before let's just go ahead and get started. Um, if you would, Dr. Toy, tell us about you. Tell us about your background and what you do. So um, I am Dr. Toy Curry. I am a licensed clinical psychologist with specialization in neuropsychology and school psychology. So basically that means I specialize in understanding brain behavior relationships, um, understanding kids, development, learning disabilities, ADHD, um, autism, kind of all of those pieces, as well as brain disorders, congenital conditions, um, kids who were born super early and premature and what that development looks like, people who have had head injuries, Alzheimer's, dementia, I kind of run the gamut in terms of those pieces. But I think for me, um, my love, passion, heart is really that interplay between mental health issues and schools slash learning differences in ADHD and what happens when those things go unaddressed. Um, And sadly, that happens a lot in the Black community because there's been, as you mentioned earlier, right, such a stigma for a label. And does this mean my kid is not smart? And what do I do with this? And insurance often doesn't cover the evaluations that I need to do to make the appropriate diagnosis. So you'll go to Dr. Monica. She does an awesome job. She's done preliminary stuff. She's like, you need more comprehensive testing. I'm going to refer you out. And then you come to someone like me and I say, here's what we need. We've got great rapport. And sometimes insurance says, that's great. You've got to pay for it out of pocket. And so what I'd love to do as I continue in my career is really start to do some legwork and advocacy towards insurance companies just on getting some of these pieces covered. But beyond that, I'm a dog lover. I love woodworking. I have started my own garden two weeks ago. So like literally everything she's saying, I'm like, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Funny thing, I was talking with a coworker. I said, I'm going to talk to the pediatrician on the podcast. She said, be careful because they're going to tell you you got to eat this and eat this. And (laughs) I I think Dr. Monica did well. She, she, Mm -hmm. you know, she let us know we need to do our garden, but you know, you know, she, she made it easy on her, but my coworker was She says her pediatrician is so hardcore that she's like, if you ask that question, be ready. Because, But I think Dr. Monica, well, I know she did. She did a good job. And I love that example of, 
you know, the garden and, you know, cooking together and thing like that. Cause that, that was definitely a beautiful insight. So tell me this, you know, let's, let's start talking about the backdrop because yes. you've been doing this for a while, long before COVID. What are some changes in mental health, you know, cases have you seen since the pandemic started? So honestly, it's been, COVID has been a blessing and a curse in terms of mental health. Because what I've seen, and, and similar to what Dr. Monica mentioned, is that there is an increase in anxiety, an increase in depression across the board, adults and children, but there's an increase of awareness with children. And so what we're seeing is that during those times where parents and children, you know, we were kind of stuck in the house <laughs> and stuck in the house board in the house board, right? When we were when we were kind of stuck together, parents became more aware of the difficulties that their children were experiencing. And so we're seeing more kids being taken to the pediatrician, right? More kids being diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And so some of it is COVID related. Social isolation is hard. It is really, really hard to manage um, for adults and kids. And so in addition to, and also I couldn't go to my grandma's funeral because COVID and she lives four hours away and we, you know, we weren't willing to drive. So there's missing out on lots of closure um, events in life and things like that, but definitely an increase in anxiety and depression at minimum. Um, for kids and adolescents, also an increase in some self-harm behavior, mm -hmm. which are related to um, anxieties and depression um, that we see. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, more anxiety, more depression, more self-harm. You know, I, I'm from a time where people said, well, you know, those are white folks problems. You know, that's what we called it. Right. And then I mm -hmm. look around and all these black folks got white folks problems. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it was when I was talking to you, but some way I stumbled across some information that black boy self-harm is on the rise. Is, is that true? It, so it is. And it's actually not even super recent. So I, I looked up, you know, that information a little bit. And actually, I found a, um, a study that was done, well, published in 2012. Right. So that's mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Um, so the research was done maybe, you know, three or four years before that. It was on the rise back then that, you know, Black boys in the South in particular were exhibiting higher rates almost than basically what we would expect would be white girls of self-harm. And so, you know, self-harm, thinking about the reasons for this, I think about expectations, right, and stigma. And we expect white girls to self-harm, right? We don't expect black boys to be anxious. We don't expect black boys to show depression. And so when we don't offer them the opportunity and the space and the room to be children and be vulnerable and be sad or worried or nervous, um, when we tell them to man up, that then causes them to internalize. And sometimes, oftentimes, kids and adults will self-harm because they don't know what to do with those feelings, right? And it gets to the point where the only time I can feel is when I'm hurting myself. And so th there is that social pressure of suck it up, man up, do what you gotta do. But these kids are struggling and it's, it's worse now with COVID 
and the numbers are rising across the board. But this phenomenon sadly isn't even as new with Black boys as I thought it was. I mean, this has been going on for over a decade, that increase. Well, well, I mean, we're going to get into some of the whys, but before we get into the whys, um, what are your thoughts on how children are affected by stress, right? You know, it's, even for me, I never thought of a child being stressed. It's like, it almost seemed like, oh, that's an adult word. That's stuff that adults Mm -hmm. do. You stress from your job. What are your thoughts on how we should look differently at children in stress and begin to understand just like adults, children have stress and it manifests. What are your takes or suggestions on that? So I always used to say, right, like children are not little adults. They experience things differently. But the reality is adults are just big children. And so the things that adults experience, children are also experiencing, but with fewer resources to cope. And so we think about the things that stress us out. Work stresses me out. Bills stress me out. So a six-year-old doesn't have a job or bills, right? So they shouldn't be stressed, except they have social pressure. They have parental pressure implied or explicitly, you know, put put upon them. They have their own interpretations and conceptions of the world and how it works and what's happening. So kids can become significantly stressed and clinically anxious and clinically depressed, even as young as three and four years old. And so that's scary to think about, right? Because a three-year-old is just learning to talk, just learning to really communicate and express themselves fully. But that child can be experiencing depression. That child can be experiencing clinical levels of anxiety, you know? And so... When we think stress, absolutely kids can experience significant stress, but it presents differently, right? If we are stressed, we might, you know, cope by having an extra glass of wine at dinner tomorrow night, or, you know, we want to hang out with our friends. We need a break from the kids. Kids will exhibit, you know, irritability, frustration, clinginess. I mean, inattention, hyperactivity all kinds of behaviors. And sometimes us adults go, why is that child acting out? What's going on? We miss the the reason for the behavior because we're so focused on the behavior and correcting the behavior, right? We don't want them acting out in the store. So we're putting all this pressure on them. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Well, that's just adding to their stress. So now they have to go in the store and stop themselves from doing things that are natural for a four-year-old. It's natural for a four-year-old to want to touch every box of cereal in the supermarket. They're colorful, right? It's it's there, but we go, don't touch, don't touch, stop. It's constant yelling. And it's just like, oh God, what do I do? Like, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm four. I don't know how to handle not doing what comes naturally to me. So I, I think for us as adults, we have to step back and, and set our kids up for success, but also recognize that stress is real for them. And it's not an excuse for inappropriate behavior, but we need to think about how we're correcting the behaviors that we're seeing. Wow, awareness and attention. I mean, be intentional and awareness. You know, sitting down and talking with you, is a really great conversation. I just wanna kind of read, you know, some of your words that really, really stuck with me. It says, children these days are highly active in multiple sports every season. 
They're on the travel team. They're in Girl Scouts and even more. This is a great activity, except it can come and contribute to mental issues because this activity can begin to lead to internalized stress. Mm-hmm. Many so. children K through five or experiencing what you would call, and I like this new word because I like words, school-related types of stress. I'm going to pause for a second because you had a thought, but I definitely want to hear about school-related stress and the sources of some of the stress that kids and families are experiencing, but please finish your thought. Well, I was just going to start on the the school-related stress pieces. So I would love to claim that term but I actually first heard it from um, an amazing colleague and school psychologist and really good friend of mine named Dion Dancy. So when you watch this, Dion, I have shouted you out because you're dope. Um, but school-related stress is, is this thing that I think has always been around a little bit. But in today's society, it is so pressure-filled and so competitive, right? It's not okay to just play football. You have to be a three-season athlete plus get straight A's, plus do community service in, you know, in your neighborhood and in the underprivileged area. And so parents are unintentionally, because we think we're doing what's best for our kid, right? We want them to get into the best school so they have the best opportunities. But the neighbor's kid plays football, baseball, and runs track, and, and they have a 3.9 GPA. So for my kid to be competitive, they have to do the same things, right? Well, yeah, your kid's good at all those things, but when do they sleep? Or when do they just get to decompress? Like our kids are so overscheduled that when they don't have a schedule, they don't know what to do. And so a lot of parents, in my experience, COVID, what COVID did was bring a lot of that to the forefront, right? Because there were no sports for a lot of kids. And so some kids were falling the F apart. <laughs> they had no idea what to do with their day because they didn't have two a days for football or, you know, I don't have practice after school. I come home and parents are like, well, now they're lazy. No, they're not lazy. They just, you've scheduled their life for them until they were 19. They have no idea how to manage themselves. And so the, the stress piece comes in when those kids are like, how am I going to get into college? What do I do now? I don't get to do all these things that made me important and special. And they miss out on learning to be bored. The kids don't know how to be bored anymore. Boredom is not a negative thing. Boredom increases creativity. Boredom forces you to use your imagination. Boredom forces you to problem solve. Kids don't know how to do that because they've not had those opportunities. And so that 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 stress piece of being overscheduled is not healthy, right? And when you're parents, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I have my doctorate. That sounds all fancy in my head. So my kids are really young now. They're six months and three years old, right? So in my head, I want them to do whatever brings them joy and makes them happy as an adult. But I know once they get older, right, I'm going to start to feel that parent pressure of, I need my kid to be doing this and my kid got a B and everyone else got an A and why is that? And do we need a tutor and all of these things? I need to learn to shut that down before it starts because maybe a B is what's healthy for my kid in that class, right? 
doesn't mean my kid is lazy, doesn't mean my kid's not capable, but that's the resource, that that's the emotional resource and cognitive resource that my kid was able to dedicate to that exam. And now it's over, right? I, I want us to be able to put that hat on and say, my kid doesn't have to have a 4-0. And if they do, that's great. But if they have a 4-0 because they stay up till midnight studying every night, that's not healthy, right? That's not fortitude and really just trying hard. That's unhealthy. Well, you know, thanks for sharing that, you know. And of course, being one of those driven parents, I like the way you described it. Some of this depends on the family, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a family, these are your words. If a family comes from, you know, a family that have, quote unquote, professional careers like lawyers, doctors and architects, your words, then Mm -hmm. these are the personas that can begin to essentially have expectations. And I love the way you described it. You said as these type of parents, me, I'm guilty, (laughs) they expect, we expect the child to be just as successful, at least as successful Mm -hmm. as the parent. If not more. If not more. So what can be done about this SRS, this school-related stress? And I'm going to um, hopefully, Devante, is it Devante? Is that? No, that's Jodeci. That's Devante Jodeci. Okay, your colleague. I'm going to look up, you know, his work. So hopefully he's published something on it because I want to know more about it. Because I love that term. It didn't say in the classroom stress. It didn't say because of school stress. But it's stress that is related mm-hmm. to school-type stuff. Mm-hmm. School interaction, school relationships, school assignments, school grades, school schedules, school expectations. It's related, also mm-hmm. known as overachievement. What can be done about this school related stress, this SRS? What can we parents do differently? So, I, I mean, I think the first step is, is open communication, right? Um, I've worked in environments where kids had options, for example, in a math class, right? It's middle school, it's high school. You can be in the on-level class or the accelerated class, right? You can do honors or on-level. My kid is capable of honors, so they're going to do honors. Yeah, your kid is capable of honors, but your kid is also playing three sports and is in honor, you know, three other honors classes. Why don't you let them do on-level math? And I've had kids literally come to my office crying because they don't want to do the honors, not because they're not capable or intelligent enough, but because it's too much pressure and too much work. And so I think the first thing we can do as parents is listen to our kids, right? We think we know what school is like. um, And and I know we're not like supposed to deep dive into the chat, but I was peeking a little bit when Dr. Monica (laughs) was talking, right? Like school is a different beast right now. Um, And beyond the the social media pressure and things like that, there is so much just pressure to be a success. Um, And what does that word even mean, right? Like in my head, I want my kid to be happy and a good problem solver and independent and a good person. To me right now, that is my definition of success. And so if that means that you go to college when you're 46, cool. Do what works for you as long as you are independent and healthy and can manage your life. Um, But that's hard when you're a professional parent and you have your family, especially as a Black person in this country, right? 
you're a lawyer, so you married someone you either met in law school or in college, because that's usually what happens. Mm -hmm. So another professional, your parents have expectations of you as a parent. And so if I'm a lawyer and my child works at Starbucks till they're 50, my parent might look at me as a failure, but my child is happy and healthy and can manage their own life. To me, that's a success. So, so I think that the first thing we need to do as parents is step back and listen to our kids and what they need, but also take ourselves out of it. My kid's success is not about me. And that's hard to like actually appreciate and fully understand. It's not about me. So if they choose not to go to college, cool. Now we're gonna have some discussions about you not living in my basement, right? Because <laughs> you gotta do something. But this is a very different world and there's a ton of pressure, even in elementary school. I mean, there are elementary school students who get stressed out and worried and nervous and cry because they may not go to Harvard. You are in third grade and you failed a spelling test and you're crying because you may not go to Harvard at eight, but everyone in your family has gone to Harvard. So in your head at eight, that's the expectation. Well, you know, thanks for sharing that because, you know, I was thinking of the next question and you you kind of got it started on based on the type of patients you see um, and the problems you solve. Tell us more, for example, you know, you have, you know, various types of patients you're seeing, or you, like mm -hmm. you said, um, let's think about some age groups. Let's think about that, you know, K through, you know, five, right? Fifth grade. And, you know, what are some of the issues you're seeing through K through five? And what are some things that if parents are hearing, most likely they should be, you know, checking for you. And I, I peeped at the service, the client, I mean, the state you cover, and I have to read this out just because I'm so impressed. You actually take patients in... Arizona, Colorado, D.C., is that Delaware, Florida, mm -hmm. Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, New England, New Hampshire, Nevada, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, and Virginia. Good Lord. People pretty, that's almost 50, you know, but it's yeah. like if people have children and have questions, they can reach out to you and you actually have consultations. But before we get to, you know, how they engage with you, tell us about some of the scenarios parents are coming to you with for, let's say, K through five and then six through eight. What are the issues that you're treating? So K through five, um, honestly, very similar to six through eight. Lots of anxiety, um, lots of depression. Lots of parenting support in terms of behavior management. Um, you know, a child is part of a family system. And so when a child starts to exhibit behaviors or, you know, starts to change and adjust, it adjusts the family. And so any child I work with requires me to work with the entire family because um, the child is not in a vacuum, right? So I can't fix your kid. I, and I'll tell any parent that, like, I can't fix anything by myself. I can help you and help your child to adjust and address things, but I can't fix anything because your child goes home with you, right? Like your child doesn't live with me. Um, the other piece of it, honestly, is, you know, so a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of behavior management for things like ADHD and autism, um, selective mutism is something that um, I got some training in about two years ago and have continued my training 
and I'm, I'm really, really interested and engaged with um, working with clients and children who experience selective mutism. So selective mutism, that is, is that what I think it is? Or what is that? So selective mutism is basically an anxiety disorder. Um, it's highly related to anxiety where an individual is in a situation that's social and literally cannot talk, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to, but their anxiety does not allow them to talk. And so what you used to think of, of like, there's a shy kid, right? There could be a child that's shy. And after 10 or 15 minutes, they open up, they're a little more comfortable. They might use a super quiet voice, but then there's that child that has selective mutism who just can't do it, right? And it's oh. not, and, and sometimes parents push and like, come on, say something, say hi to Nan. And it's just, they wet their pants. Like they start to exhibit behaviors that are inappropriate, um, crying, screaming, trying to leave. Um, because literally it's like putting a snake in the face of someone who has a snake phobia. So. Wow. You know, it's now it's I've been reminded what that term is. It's like the going back to the anxiety, the anxiety is so strong. It begins to overwhelm them to where they just cannot talk because mm -hmm. they're overwhelmed. And it's, I guess for adults, we used to call it stage fright. Right. You uh -huh. know, and, and, you know, we just kind of freeze up. Right. But then that's kind of happening in, you know, non-stage environments. And so that seemed like that's some of the things you're working with. Oh, yes. And and they might play with kids on the playground and be totally fine. And then in the classroom, like just can't do it. And so I, I really enjoy working with those families because when that kid does start to talk and you do start to hear that voice, it's, it's like you got to find that line between like, show like that you're excited, but don't be too excited because you don't want to freak them out. So awesome. I, awesome. I really enjoy that. So so tell us about um, your engagements. I think you have a um, initial consultation, right? Yes. So tell us um, parents can reach out to me on my website um, and I will, you know, pop that in the chat and they can, um, a 20 minute consultation is absolutely free. Um, and I'm adding some dates. So if you go on the website right this minute, there are no dates on the calendar, but I'm going to be putting dates in tomorrow morning. So if you go in about noon, there'll be plenty of dates on the calendar for a 20 minute consultation. That's free to literally discuss anything, right? You might say, I don't even know that I want to see a therapist or that I need an evaluation, but I got some questions. Feel free consultation. Um, and then, of course, I do evaluations for learning disabilities, ADHD, um, anxiety, depression, treatment for executive dysfunction, um, organizational issues, time management issues, ADHD-related beha behaviors, anxiety, depression, all of those things. Um, I am physically located in Georgia, so I do have a physical office where I see clients, and then all those states you mentioned, of course, I provide uh, telehealth services in those states as well, including some telehealth assessments. Um, awesome, awesome. I'm going to bring Dr. Monica back for some Q&A. And, you know, while we're getting her um, prepared, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts about this, this thing 
telemedicine, as they're saying, and this telemedicine is, is popping up. What's been your experience? Has it been bittersweet for you? Are you getting more patients or are you going to get all 50 states? What's happening in your world when it comes to telemedicine? So with psychology, it's actually, um, as Dr. Monica mentioned, telehealth has been around for a long time. It's honestly not something I used a ton, if at all, before COVID. I'd use it occasionally for like feedbacks for parents from testing if they were farther out in more rural areas. Um, but it's been amazing for me and what psychologists have done. So the reason I can see clients in so many states is that psychologists have gotten together and um, basically gotten legislation passed in all of these states and you have to get board approved and all this stuff, um, but gotten legislation passed that allows for telehealth services just because there are not enough mental health providers to serve all the clients that need to be served. Um, Georgia, even though I'm located here physically, like we are not great about mental health services and support. I think we're like 48 out of 50 in terms of mental health services and support. Um, and so, and my therapist, right? Like I have a therapist. You have a and therapist? And I, I told myself very clearly, I'm going to say this on this podcast. My therapist is dope. Um, but I have a therapist and, and like black people do do therapy and should do therapy. And, and I waited a long time to get a therapist, even as a therapist, I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. Therapy is wonderful. And also the hardest thing that I've ever done. Right. Wow. Because all that stuff that you think you dealt with, you haven't. And, and it comes up in everything you do. And every once in a while, my therapist will be like, so what I'm hearing you say is this, this, and this. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I guess I am saying that, huh? I need to process that, you know? Yes. So, you know, and my I see my therapist online. My therapist is located in Georgia, but because of my schedule and Atlanta traffic, it, it makes it so much more convenient for both of us. And, and I'm able to do consistent sessions because of telemedicine and telehealth. So Awesome. The future is here. It is. Awesome. KD, what do you think? I, I know this is one of the shows that you're definitely excited about. So I know you got some questions for the audience. And Tamika, if you have some questions, if you're in the audience, this is a great time to raise your hand and it'll let us know that you're ready or you can hit a button or something. And Tamika's going to be watching, Katie's going to be watching, and we're going to spend about 10 minutes um, just doing some Q&A. But Katie, go ahead and get us started, because I know you got some questions. And Tamika, if you don't mind helping us kind of pull some from the chat, that'd be great. Certainly. So one of our first questions was about how do we increase our education as adults around what it is um, that kids are going through? And how do we stay in tune, really, with the children? What are some tips that you can give, just so we're aware of what it is they're going through, knowing that school is different and life is different and everything else? I, I mean, I if I can go for I mean, Dr. Monica is a beast, and she has, like, everything she's saying. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. But I, I will say, Try to keep a non-judgmental ear open when your children are talking to their friends and to you, right? It, it's very easy to hear your child say something and automatically react to, what are you talking about? And that's not you too young for all of that. And that too young for 
what we were too young for is very different than what our kids are too young for because they're exposed to so much more. They have access to so much more. So I would say that's the 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 easiest thing to, it's hard to do, but the easiest, least cost, most cost-effective thing to do um, is to keep an open, non-judgmental ear when your kids are talking and then start that conversation and, and really hear them. Don't just listen, like hear what they're saying and what they're asking. Awesome. Dr. Monica, we'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Dr. Toy. No, I totally agree with what she's saying. And I think that when you start that, we talk about laying foundations and laying a seat, like for instance, having specific times where they, you know, where you have that conversation. So it could be mealtime, it could be in the car. It doesn't have to be anything deep, but I think also helping them to be able to effectively communicate. So asking open-ended questions. So not just yes or no questions so that you can find out more. Instead of saying, how was your day today? I may ask my daughter, so what was the you know most exciting thing about your day today and why, or how did it make you feel? Um, I think that also helps them to become in tune with their conversations. And then sometimes they may not want to open up and that's fine. Also having another trusted adult that they can talk to, but that they know that when that door is open, when they're ready and, and comfortable talking to you. And like Dr. Toy said, that it's non-judgmental. You're not making them feel bad. You're not making them feel unworthy that they will say, well, you know, I can't go talk to that mom of mine. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yes, that, that reminds me of my son. He's more likely to talk to his mom than his dad, but I think that's you know, kids in general. On occasion, he'll talk to me because, you know, I, I love that. Go ahead, Katie. Yeah, sure. There are a couple of questions, actually, that have been about meds. So people would like to know, are there alternatives to meds for some of the some of the different things that you've been talking about kids are going through? And this is a question for both of you, really. Ooh, who's going first? Okay. <laughs> I probably would prefer to Dr. Toy because when they come to, I mean, for instance, there are in a perfect world, if a parent, you know, does want to, and of course all parents are not, they will be on meds as well as seeing a psychologist, right? So also having been mm-hmm. able to it's a package deal. You can't have, you shouldn't have one without the other. Um, but for those families that choose not to, then I definitely do end up deferring to the psychologist to talk about behavioral therapy, to talk about some other alternatives that they can do. I know Dr. Toy, you may speak about a lot of families have some dietary um, modifications that they may choose to um, to take into consideration to help with their children as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it it depends on the behavior and the diagnosis and what I tell. And I get this question a lot from parents, right? Because um, I'll do an evaluation and then I'll say, oh, you know, I'm diagnosing your child with anxiety or autism or ADHD. And their first question or oftentimes is, well, do we have to do medicine? And my response is, and my stance on medication is, that is up to you and your discussion with your pediatrician or your psychiatrist. Um, Pediatric psychiatrist doesn't mean that your child is crazy, right? But if they have a complex history, um, sometimes they need to see someone who does what we do, but together, right? What me and Dr. Monica do, but as one person. Um, There are behavioral therapy treatments that can be done, but that requires consistency on the part of the parent, right? So, and, and follow through. And so if, if meds are not a replacement for that, because on meds, you still need to be consistent and follow through. Um, But there's no magic pill, right? And I say to parents, my threshold for me definitely saying you need to go think about meds and, and consider it is if your child is at a place where they are unsafe, 
or it is impacting their self-concept or self-esteem. So if your child has ADHD to the point where they are getting reprimanded every day by their teacher and they come home every day and say, my teacher hates me. She yells at me all the time for not being in my seat, for not finishing my work, da 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 and that's because of the ADHD, then you need to talk to your pediatrician because your child is likely then going to develop anxiety and or depression. And then that's just on top of the inattention and the ADHD. So that's my threshold is if they can't do their job as a student and if they are doing things that are unsafe, like running in the middle of the street after a ball because they're impulsive and not looking where they're going. so, and of course, oh. if they're harming themselves, right, with, so engaging in self-harm because they're not able to manage the anxiety or depression, then definitely I would say, I would say meds. And, and the alternative to that is pretty intensive therapy, which can be very costly. And if you are in a family where you have two parents and both parents work or you're a single parent family that works, managing that therapy schedule, and it, it's a challenge, it is a significant challenge. So, well, Doctor, so what you're saying and what I hear, because I'm just kind of taking it all in, is that it's a parent's choice, but then there's a thresh these thresholds, and there's this safe and this unsafe place. My thresholds, right? Yeah. Everybody's got their different mm-hmm. one, but that's that's my yeah. threshold. And then what I'm also hearing is that without medication, depending on the situation, it can be a full time job. I'm thinking about the old fashioned thing where I used to hear people say, once again, white folk problems, oh, excuse me, they're just, I love everybody, but you know, there were problems that we gave to white folks. And they say, well, little Johnny can't have sugar. And I never understood why little Johnny couldn't have sugar. I'm like, why are they acting funny? What the baby can't have no sugar, right? But now it makes sense why little Johnny couldn't have sugar because that was the nutritional part. Mm-hmm. Dr. Monica, do you find yourself, you know, recommending certain, I mean, I, I like your approach, right? You know, we need vegetables, we need healthy food. Do you find yourself, you know, talking to families about their nutrition based on some of these nuances you're seeing? Definitely. There's some, been some research and a lot more research to come that does state that there may be a correlation between our nutritional intake, specifically, you know, excessive sugars that may be having increased diagnosis of ADHD. So definitely having a very thorough conversation about the diet, um, especially if a parent is noticing a specific trigger as it relates to the diet. So it's really all about what they're seeing after the child has consumed a particular food product. So it's definitely a conversation that comes up and definitely something to be a student attuned to. Awesome. What other questions you got, Katie? Um, to me? Sure. I've got another one that's actually about really child, uh, parents advocating for their children. So when parents see that they have too much stress, the children have stressful schedules, for instance, in school, too many AP classes, um, too many classes in general. How do you suggest that parents really advocate for their children in the school setting? I I would suggest that they advocate with their children and not necessarily for their children, because again, some of the stress that these kids, the school related stress that these kids are feeling, they it's their norm, right? And so if I'm in 11th grade and I'm taking four AP classes and I'm up till 1 a.m. every night and that's my norm and you as my parent try to take that away from me, now you and I have a conflict, right? And you think you're advocating for me. So it's it's having, again, open conversations and communication with your child to say, here's what I'm seeing. How are you feeling? Do you feel rested in the morning? 
You know, how are you managing your schedule? Oh, it's not working for you? Cool. When we're looking at your schedule for next semester, what class are we going to drop? What AP are we not going to do? Because this, I'm as your parent, this does not look healthy, right? Your first step is to advocate with your child and then work with the school to say, yep, my child was on track to be valedictorian. I don't care, right? Like I want my child to also not lose all their hair before they're 18. And I don't want them to develop these habits that they'll take into college when I'm not there to support them. Because then you're going to see that increased anxiety, depression, substance use. You know, we talk about self-harm and a self-harm behavior that I think a lot of people don't talk about is unsafe sex practices, right? We talk about cutting and, and burning and physical self-harm, but like, and, and some people enjoy sex for what it is and that's fine. But some people that is, again, for them, the only time I feel anything is when I'm doing this thing. And that's the only reason I'm doing it, right? It's not because I love you or I want to be physical with you or anything. So I I think it's advocating with your child first, um, open conversation, and then just making that decision. Again, their success is not about you. Wow. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Anything you would add to that, Dr. Monica? No, she hit it on the head. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. What else you have, Katie? Let's take uh, two more questions. Certainly. Um, someone asked, Letitia Spikes asked, what are your thoughts on the shortage of behavioralists in the U.S. and its effect it will have on therapy achievements and school behaviors? Mm, behavioralists. Uh, what is that? Can somebody define that for me? So so if we're talking, I know some people earlier in the chat were, were talking about autism. And so if we're talking specifically about autism and applied behavior analysts, That's one um, method of treating autism, and there are pros and cons to that, Um, absolutely. But ABA therapists are also super helpful with a ton of conditions, right, that have behaviors. So ADHD, um, oppositional defiant disorders, conduct disorders, things of that nature. And so there aren't enough behavioral supports, people, period, right? ABA therapists, there aren't enough psychologists. I... I would love to say that every pediatrician is like Dr. Monica, but they are not enough. There are not enough Dr. Monica's out there, right? Like as she's talking, and I say she like you're not on the screen. As you're talking, like I was, and maybe I shouldn't have been, so I don't mean this in a negative, but highly impressed by your awareness and ability to conceptualize and talk about the mental health piece that kids experience. I don't even know that my pediatrician for my children is is that well-versed in mental health. And so um, I think it has a significant impact on therapy and achievement in schools. And I think it's part of this gap that we see. Um, I've worked in independent schools, private schools, whatever you wanna call them for a long time where we have a learning strategist, a counselor, deans, you know, we've got all this support for kids outside of the academics. And I've been in schools, not for very long, honestly, where you've got deans, um, school safety people, all this stuff, but one school psychologist for like 800 kids. Hmm. And, And those schools function very differently. And so it's hard to listen to a lecture about history when your anxiety is up to here, right? Because 
And it doesn't have to be the school-related stress piece. It can be, my mom has cancer and I am sitting in this classroom and my mom has a doctor's appointment today and I can't keep my phone on me. I'm not allowed to have it. After I leave here, I got to go to Nana's house because daddy's at the hospital with my mom. Like, I, and so to not have a counselor to go talk to, to help you with some breathing techniques, some visualization, to go to the counselor's office and say, hey, can I please just call my mom for five minutes to check on her? That's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what, you know, what we need to be thinking about is adjusting some of that in our schools, having more emotional behavioral support um, and, and not necessarily school safety people. I mean, that's important. I don't deny, we know things that have happened recently, right? We need school safety people, sadly, um, but we need emotional safety as well for, for the kids in our schools, so. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you. Tonight has been awesome and I'm gonna have to wind us down because I'm really, really grateful for Dr. Monica being so patient as we went through the session. I'm really, really grateful for Dr. Toy being so patient as we went through our run of show. And I'm really grateful for both of you for doing what you do. You know, we love when people show up at Southern Soul and they bring their A game. You see, we got all kind of fancy, sophisticated, highfalutin, as my grandma would say, those highly fluent people. But then they don't show up with their A game. So I just want to thank you all for showing up with your A game. And I want to let the audience know that we're going to continue this theme of family over the next two weeks. Next week, we have an awesome show. We're going to be talking about if you have a friend or family member that has a young athlete in high school or college, and they're getting ready to go into college, but you're wondering what their career is going to be. We have an awesome athlete, professional, entrepreneur, um, athletic director who's going to join us and talk about career paths for those athletes. In addition, we're going to have a two-part segment where if you got a young boy or a girl that's, you know, entering high school and you feel like they need some of that private organization to help them with professional skills, you know, how to be a man and how to, you know, speak and look people in the eye, how to dress, how to tie a tie, then that organization is getting ready to launch their chapter in Atlanta, Georgia. So we're going to have them. And then next, the week after next, we're not going to stop. We're going to get down with family dysfunction and generational curses. Mm. Yeah, we're going to bring in a couple of therapists. And, you know, she said she got she had this fancy term for it. I'm like, what that mean? She said, oh, we used to call it generational curses. I'm like, all right, thank you. But, yeah, we're going to talk about whatever that it was like it had eight syllables. Right. But we're going to talk about it. Why? Because these are the conversations we need to have. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dr. Monica. Thank you, Dr. Toy. Um, Katie, anything you want to say before we wrap up? I want to say thank you. You know, I was looking forward to the show um, and we'll definitely be sharing the show once it's ready with a lot of other people. Um, You women are just phenomenal and I really appreciate what you're doing in the community um, in ways that are really going to heal our children and heal our community. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.